take your Bible with me this morning and turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, uh, we're going to consider verses 9 through 15. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a stack of Bibles in the back. Please uh, go pick one up. It would be really great for you to see these words in front of you uh, as, uh, as I read them and as we consider them together this morning. Uh, we said it earlier, this morning is Palm Sunday. Um, this is the Sunday that we set aside uh, uh, to celebrate uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he rode into Jerusalem on uh, the colt of a donkey and, um, and recognize his kingship um, and, uh, and what rightfully belongs to him. Uh, as this week progresses, this kicks off Holy Week, as this week progresses, uh, we get to Friday, uh, which is Good Friday, with the day that we celebrate the, the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, and that day, uh, this week, we will have a Good Friday service at 4.30 right here. Uh, so I'd love to have you join us back here for that, 4.30 on Friday. Um, and then next Sunday is obviously, um, is obviously Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Um, and so remember, make note of the, uh, the service time changes next Sunday, 8.30 for the early service, uh, 10.45 for the second service, and then right in between, uh, we're going to have brunch together, 9.30 a.m. Come back, uh, come here for brunch at 9.30. Um, but if you're planning to join us for the second service, know that you'll be about 15 minutes early if you show up at, at 10.30, which won't be a big deal. You'll just have more time to talk to people and give them more virtual hugs. John chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Um, this text comes right on the heels of the conversation of new birth that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee. Uh, this conversation is a continuation of that conversation that we talked about last week. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Again, the events of Palm Sunday are important. And, and when we started in the Gospel of John, I think in September of last year, we didn't, I didn't necessarily plan to be in chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, but I think that there are some neat intersections with the way that uh, Palm Sunday works itself out um, and, uh, and the events that, of that day. Um, and again, this week is the week where we celebrate uh, Jesus riding into Jerusalem, but then also uh, the, the events that follow, the, 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 uh, the, the betrayal and the trial and the false accusations and the execution and the burying of Jesus Christ. And then, but then on the first day of the next week, obviously we celebrate the resurrection. Jesus uh, would walk out of the grave. And then after that, we know the scripture is clear that Jesus walked on the earth for 40 days and appeared to hundreds of people, uh, corroborating the testimony that he had, had in fact defeated death. And then after those 40 days, he ascended into heaven. He ascended into heaven where he is currently at this moment. And that's where I want to start this morning. Um, I want to think some high thoughts about the person of Jesus Christ. 
Um, because I think for us sometimes in our culture, especially for those of us who have spent a lot of time in church, um, we don't think we think about Jesus as he is as he is um, displayed in Scripture, and so we think about a past person. But the reality is that everything that is true about Jesus and that is spoken to us in God's word about Jesus Christ is true in this very moment as well. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so just as Jesus was when he ascended into heaven 2,000-ish years ago, so he is right now at this moment. And there's a lot of different things that we can say uh, about this. This is a a high thought. Jesus is alive. He is bodily. And even at this very moment, friends, if you are in Christ, even at this very moment, Jesus is speaking to the Father on your behalf. He is, the blood of Jesus is being, is being, uh, is covered you and uh, Jesus is pleading that before the Father. If you're in Christ, Jesus himself has your name on his lips telling God the Father that what he accomplished on the cross, the work that was done there, uh, is all that's necessary to bring you into God's family. And I, I want you to reflect on this this week. I don't think that's something that we reflect on nearly enough, or at least I can speak for myself. I know that I don't reflect on that nearly enough. The actual reality that Jesus Christ right now in this very moment is speaking to God the Father on our behalf for those who are in Christ. Jesus right now is man. He is a man. Think about this ethereal, disembodied spirit force in heaven when we talk about Jesus. That's not the way that the Bible paints the picture. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is as he was when he ascended 2,000-ish years ago. I want, would, you, would you hear how audacious that is? Would you, like Our faith has a, has a strong pillar right there in that truth. Like Our faith has a strong pillar that in, the, in the fact that Jesus bodily is in heaven next to God's throne and is interceding for us. And that, that's audacious. A first century Jewish Palestinian man is sitting next to God, the Father, right now. That seems pretty wild. He's probably average height, probably average build. That's where he is. He's real. He's alive. He ascended there. But the reality is also, too, though, that Jesus is right now, at this very moment, he is God. And he, he knows every, everyone in this room. Every single person in this room, Jesus knows. He knows every thought that you've ever had from the time that you had a thought until now. And from eternity past, he knew all of that. He also, right now, knows everything that you've ever done and everything that you will do and everything that you are and everything that you will become. He knows all of that. He's God. He knows everyone who is part of his flock and everyone who is not. And he knows every, every single corner of your heart. This is the God that we serve and the God that we worship. Jesus Christ, fully God, sitting at the Father's right hand at this very moment, bodily, interceding for your behalf, fully God, knowing all things for all of eternity. The eyes that John, the gospel writer here, observed when he was on earth. He looked into Jesus' eyes and he spoke to him. On many occasions, he walked with him for Jesus' earthly ministry. And those eyes that John 
the gospel writer, John the Apostle, looked into. Right now, burned with, as flames of fire, the book of Revelation tells us when Jesus met, or when John met Jesus again at the beginning of that book. And Scripture tells us that Jesus' voice is, is the roar of many waters. This is the one who is fully God and, and fully man. And the one who, this morning, we worship. We worship this one, the risen Christ, the one who has ascended. So, the, this requires, though, the eyes of faith to see. And, and when we talked about last week, verses 1 through 8, the, the new birth that's required to understand and to know spiritual things. Because outside of having that new birth, that spiritual life imparted to us, we are, in fact, spiritually dead. And we cannot observe what the things that I just said. And so what we need to do, what's easy, what the world does, and what new birth, what, what we don't need new birth for is to observe that Jesus was a past historical figure. But what we do need the eyes of faith and new life to understand is that Jesus right now, sitting at the Father's right hand, bodily speaking to God the Father on our behalf. So we need to stop thinking about him and start in the past and start thinking about him the way that the Bible says that he is. Because again, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday to get day and forever. And so I hope that then this morning, John chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, will lead us into further worship of Jesus Christ because of what Jesus tells Nicodemus here. Now remember last week we talked about the, the, God's plan of redemption being unveiled uh, in the person of Jesus Christ and how that was a progressive, uh, a progressive reality, that it didn't all happen in one quick burst. Jesus was like, boom, I'm on the scene here, everything. This is exactly how, he doesn't reveal it all in one quick burst, but over the course of his life and ministry, we come to find that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God and all of the promises of God find their yes and amen right there in the person of Jesus. And so John chapter one, and then we have this deep theological section in the prologue, and then we see how this all unfolds throughout the rest of the book. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption, how God plans to redeem his people and has set them apart for his purposes. So, Jesus is going to start talking about this more and praise God that we have the whole counsel of God before us this morning because while Nicodemus probably was a bit baffled by what Jesus said here in, in the, these verses, we don't have to be because it's clearly laid out throughout the rest of this book and throughout the rest of, of Scripture. So the people on the first Palm Sunday, and think back to that day where Jesus rode into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey's colt, they shouted Hosanna. And we said this earlier, but Hosanna roughly translates to save us. The people were looking for salvation. They wanted to understand uh, or wanted to receive salvation. And then they say in John chapter 12, just a few chapters away from where we are this morning, right there they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So there's an acknowledgement of kingship. There's an acknowledgement of, uh, of an office. There's an acknowledgement of an understanding that Jesus Christ is the one who has come to save his people. Now, what to save them from what? That was maybe out for debate uh, among the people uh, there in John chapter 12. But by the end of John's gospel, there is no doubt what Jesus came to accomplish. And... All the way back here in John chapter 3, he begins to unpack exactly what was going to, to happen. The people in John 12, when they shouted, Hosanna wanted to make Jesus king. Uh, but that, what they didn't realize was that that path, the pathway to making Jesus king, was uh, an unexpected one. 
It was far different than they could even have thought or imagined. Because in just a few days, on Friday, Jesus would die. And now, you typically political movements, when their figurehead dies, it's a pretty big blow to the political movement, right? They thought to themselves, likely, after Good Friday, after Jesus was executed, a man who could die, how could he save? But where the misunderstanding likely came was that they needed more than just a political saving. A, a, a greater salvation was needed. An eternal salvation. So, the thrust here in John chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, is found in verses 14 and 15. Jesus, when he would be lifted up on the cross, he would accomplish that salvation. When he would rise again on the third day, he would, he would, uh, he would establish and, uh, and, and make life available to the men and women who would trust in him. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he was ascending into his home. And through him, he was ascending to our home as well. So, again, these verses here, uh, verses 9 through 15 in John chapter 3, we're going to consider together the verses 14 and 15. Think about those verses in particular because that's kind of the culmination, that's the climax of the first 15 verses of, of, this, uh, of this chapter and Jesus' words to Nicodemus. And what Jesus does here in verses 14 and 15, and we're going to build to it through, through verses 9 through 13, but as he, when he gets to verses 14 and 15, what he does here is he effectively points backwards. He points backwards to the Old Testament in order to point forward to the way that God was going to redeem his people. Jesus points backwards the Old Testament in order to point forward to the way he would redeem God's people. So I want to chew on this together. But, but before we get to those two verses, verses 14 and 15, and the thrust here of this text, I want to explore sort of the lead-in and what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Because Jesus, what Jesus says before here, and uh, before verses 14 and 15, is set up. So that when he speaks what he does in verses 14 and 15, we know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus has authority to say what he's going to say. So, that's the first thing I want you to see here. That Jesus has the authority to speak about heavenly things. Jesus has the authority to speak about heavenly things. I can, I can think of several books that have been written so, somewhat recently. Um, and as far as the history of books goes, these have been recent ones. Um, where people claim to have spent some time in heaven and then what they've seen there. Uh, and they, account, they, they recount the events of that experience. A couple of popular ones that, that you note would maybe be the boy who came back from heaven or heaven is for real. And in both of those instances, a child has entered into heaven as a result of being near death and then relayed an experience about something in, in heaven. And, and many people took these experiences to be authoritative. But I think based on what Jesus says here, friends, we should not. I don't think that we should. Um, let me give you uh, the why to that statement. 
Um, Look at verse 13. Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Except he who descended the Son from heaven, the Son of Man. Even if one drop of those accounts given by people who claim to have spent some time in heaven is, is, uh, is, doesn't line up with Scripture, we should discard them as unreliable. Because, friends, we should not build our, our faith on the, the witness or testimony of fallible men, but on the infallible Word of God. The infallible Word of God, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, was the one who spoke these words here in John chapter 3. And if you think that's too harsh, uh, my, my, uh, my analysis here, I would simply point out what Jesus says again in verse 13. That no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, again, this would, this would not have been uncommon for similar stories to be circulated in Jesus' time. For people to have claimed about, especially past historical figures, that they ascended into heaven, received a word from God, and then came back down. Um, Jesus is saying that he is the source of that, the authority that stands behind any of that. So, if you go back up the page to verse 11, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you speak of what we know and bear, or we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Jesus isn't, is, is, he's just talking about himself here. And don't get hung up on the fact that he says we. It's just two people in the room. It's just Nicodemus and Jesus. And so when he says we, he's just mirroring Nicodemus' language from verse 2 when he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Who's the we? It's just Nicodemus. Jesus just mimics him and mirrors him to make his point. Nicodemus talks about what he knows based on what he's observed about Jesus. What does he know? He says, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay? That's what Nicodemus has observed. And Jesus then tells him about new birth and that you have to have spiritual life that comes through new birth. And and Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus is saying, I am telling you what I have observed. As the one who has no beginning, who has existed in eternity past, the one who descended from heaven, who doesn't have his origins here on earth, I'm telling you what I've observed and what I know to be true. But the reality of this is that the word observation is not strong enough. Because Jesus isn't telling him just what he's observed or what he's witnessed, but what he's authored. What has come to be because of Jesus is what Jesus communicates here to Nicodemus. He knows based on what he's observed, but not just on what he's observed, but what he authored. Jesus is the author of creation. Jesus is the author of life. Jesus has the utmost authority to speak about heavenly things because heaven is his home. He has no beginning and all that there is exists because of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about the connection in our language between author and, maybe you have, between author and authority, between those two words? 
The author is some, an author is someone who writes a book or a story or a poem. And an authority is someone who has a high level of knowledge about a subject, or maybe the most well-versed in a particular subject. So think about Lord of the Rings. When Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, um, he became the ultimate authority on Middle-earth and all things related to Lord of the Rings. And so it, it's not uncommon to stumble across somebody in your life who knows how to speak Elvish, right? I'm sure maybe you found somebody, or maybe not. Maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. But um, someone who speaks Elvish or like has Middle-earth tattooed on their back or something crazy like that. But, but they will never have the level of authority that the author has. They will never possess the, because Tolkien made up Elvish and then he wrote a bunch of books about it. He, he is the one who created this world in which all of these things happen where Frodo throws the ring into Mount Doom, spoiler alert. But, but this is, no one had the ability to do or to write that story outside of Tolkien and no one knows more about it or did know more about it than Tolkien did. He is the ultimate authority and will remain the ultimate authority because he authored it. Now consider that related to what we see here in John chapter 3. Jesus is the author of creation. He is the author of life. And Jesus speaks to Nicodemus as the one who brought all there is into existence. He is the one who has been united with God the Father and God the Spirit for eternity. And heaven is his home. It's not my home. It's not your home apart from him. But it is where he is from. And all knowledge and all wisdom, including what he tells Nicodemus here, therefore comes from heaven. So Jesus is the author, and therefore he has authority. And anyone else who claims to speak of heavenly things claims to do so as one who finds their origins here on earth. Someone who claims to have authority does so as someone who claims or has their origins here on earth. They would have to ascend to heaven to make heavenly claims. But look at what Jesus says. No one has ascended into heaven except for he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus comes down from heaven, having existed there in eternity past, and reveals details of God's plan of redemption and the new life that only he can bring. And so this is the second thing. This leads into what I said out of the gate here, that that Jesus points backwards into the Old Testament in order to point forward to the way he would redeem God's people. So Nicodemus makes claims based on his observations about who Jesus is, comes to Jesus, asks him about about himself, and Jesus gives him a, a better understanding of what it means to be born again. And then Nicodemus asks, how can these things be And Jesus says, I am speaking of what I have observed and not only observed, but what I have authored. And then he tells him how this is all going to come about in verses 14 and 15. And so Jesus points backwards to the Old Testament in order to point forward to the way he would redeem God's people. In verse 14, Jesus references Moses and he references this story from from Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. 
the nation of Israel is uh, in the wilderness and they're being led by Moses, right? So they're being led by Moses. And, and the text says, uh, as, as the people of Israel did every five to 10 minutes, they were grumbling. And the text says, uh, they became impatient on the way. The people say, why, to Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Don't, don't re- remember 400 years in slavery in Egypt. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food or water, and we loathe this worthless food. What a, what a crazy, contradictory statement they just made. There's no food and we hate it. We hate the food that we don't have. This is the heart of a grumbler revealed right there. So what happens next? What happens next is that God sends fiery serpents among the people and they bite the people so that many people of Israel died. So God delivers his people out of slavery, 400 years of it in Egypt. He delivers his people out of this this slavery And then they bemoan his liberating kindness over and over and over again. And the wages of sin is death. So God sends fiery serpents and they bite many people. But but Moses calls to the people and he says, repent. Turn from your sin. Quit moaning and groaning. Um, And then he prays to God that essentially for redemption, for salvation from what was at hand. The serpents. He prays that the serpents would be taken away. In Numbers 21, 8 and 9, the Lord says to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. God makes a way. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at it, at the bronze serpent, and live. Moses sets the serpent on a pole, lifts it up, Look upon it and live. What Jesus does here in verse 14 is compare himself to that bronze serpent. He compares himself to that bronze serpent. The wages of sin is death. But look to the one who is lifted up. Those who see and believe will live. And the difference here between Jesus' comparison is that those who looked at the bronze serpent in the wilderness would live to uh, be a particular age. But they would ultimately die. But those who look to Jesus will live eternally. Right at the end of verse 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus would be lifted up on the cross and there he would pay for the sins of the world. Serpent goes up in the wilderness. Physical life given to the Israelites in the wilderness. Jesus goes up on the cross. Eternal life given to all of God's people for all of time. How how does Jesus offer this new life? How does Jesus offer the eternal life? This is what he's revealing to Nicodemus. Jesus offers this new life through his death. On Palm Sunday, it would seem that the people thought that Jesus being lifted up on a colt or a donkey 
would redeem his people from political and societal oppression. But it wasn't being lifted up on the back of a beast of burden that would free them. But their freedom would come when on his back the burden of sin was laid. On Good Friday, he would be lifted up again, but this time to die. Not like a king though, like a common criminal. He was lifted up and there God's plan of redemption would be finalized. And all who look to the cross of Christ and to his death for the forgiveness of their sins will live eternally. Friends, the call here is is clear. It's simple. It's look and live. Look and live. But first we must acknowledge the authority that Jesus has. I said this earlier, but Jesus is the author of creation. He's the author of life. He's the author of your faith. If Jesus is the author of these things, which he is, he's the very word of God that took on flesh. If Jesus is the author of creation, life, faith, then all authority is his. He says it right at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, 18. He says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. That, that's an audacious claim. No one outside of the author could make that claim. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Everything that you are, down to the atoms, and everything that you have, down to the penny, are because Jesus authored it and Jesus willed it to be so. And since this is true, we must ask ourselves, will we... Will we swear allegiance, like the men and women on Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, will we swear allegiance to our king? Not as those who just see a political or societal uh, freedom coming our way, but as those who see an eternal restoration and redemption on the horizon. Jesus suffered earthly ridicule and humiliation. He suffered way more than you or I ever will know. But God has highly exalted him and he's given him the name that is above every other name and that King Jesus is to whom our allegiance is owed. The problem with authority, though, is that this is the oldest trick in the book. Uh, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the, the very first sin, the way that sin entered the world was when the serpent came to Eve and said to her these words. He said, did God actually say? Do, do you hear what lies behind that? It's a questioning of authority. Now, it's, it's ins- it seems insane because God just spoke into existence everything with a word. He didn't even lift a finger and he spoke everything into existence. All things came into existence with the word that God spoke. And yet, did God actually say those words stuck in the ear of Eve? Did God actually say? It's a questioning of an authority. And in our society, maybe even more than, than it has in recent years, questions authority. We're premier skeptics of our, of our century. We violate God's commands continually because we fail to acknowledge the authority that stands behind those commands. If Jesus is the author of life and creation and says that all authority has been given to him, 
then it has dramatic implications. Will we live our lives subject to him, submitting to his word, or we travel our own path, following him when convenient, but only considering him when things go wrong or we need something? The call to look and live, though, isn't just, uh, is, is, goes further. It's to look and to live, yes, in an eternal one-time salvation sense, but also to live your life in light of King Jesus. Look to the one who was raised up and put to death on your account and on mine and live in light of it. Jesus is the only one who can save you. He's the only one who can redeem you. He is the only one to whom we rightfully shout, Hosanna, save us. But he does so in an unexpected way. He does so by lifting, being lifted up on a bloodstained cross. And just as the sin of the people in Numbers 21 comes out in their grumbling, and the punishment in the form of fiery serpents, God provided a way for them to live. And he provides a way for you to live as well. Our sin, your sin, my sin, could separate us from God for eternity in the form of eternal punishment and never-ending anguish and torment in hell. And God sends Jesus Christ to drink that for you. God provides a way for us to be forgiven through the blood of Jesus and gives us new life, a life that will live unto him for eternity. Look to Jesus and live. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the clarity with which we are shown exactly how life comes to us. It may not come in the way that we would suspect or the way that we would think. It comes through the death of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, come to earth, descended from heaven, into our reality to dwell amongst his creatures. God, may we look to his death this week as we embark into Holy Week. May we look to the reality that he, he is the one who can give us life and redeem God's people. God, may we look and live for our redemption. God, but may we look to King Jesus as well for the cues on how to live. God, may we see that our life is owed to him. Everything that we are and everything that we have is owed to the one who has authored it all. That one is Jesus Christ. God, may we live lives of gratitude. God, may we live lives as those who are fully subjected to him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.